Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, friends. It's your host, Brian James, with a quick note before we get to today's interview. Some of you have been reaching out wondering what's going on with the podcast. And I want to let you know that I am planning on continuing producing episodes. It's always been important for me that this project is an easy and natural extension of my own curiosity and inquiry. I never wanted it to feel like a job. So that means that I might not release episodes for a while. But that doesn't mean that I've just been sitting around. Since the last episode back in September, I've been increasingly busy with my coaching practice And I've been working on some new projects that I'm really excited to share. The latest is a video series that I've just released that explores the shamanic approach to yoga that I've been developing over the past few years. When considering the prospect of recording this video series, I was sure that I could never fully replicate the experience of the in-person yoga and shamanic journey events that Debbie and I have been doing since about 2017 and I felt a lot of internal resistance to the idea of even attempting to bring this approach into an online format. But with the possibility of in-person events being so uncertain for the foreseeable future, I felt that I had to at least give it a try. So I did. I mean, what else could I do? So when approaching the challenge of facilitating the kind of magic that happens when we're in person, It was important for me to film the series in a ceremonial space, surrounded by nature, to help create the right atmosphere. And after searching high and low, I finally found a beautiful yurt just a few kilometers down the road from where we live here on Vancouver Island, and I arranged to rent it for a day. So on December 10th, which was two days after my 46th birthday, I recorded a number of sequences that I've workshopped over countless hours of teaching and practice. I then spent many hours editing the footage, recording voiceovers and soundscapes of drumming and chanting, trying to get as close to the live experience as I could. And after all that, I can honestly say that this online offering is the best representation of where I'm at these days with my own practice and my teaching. And it's what I most want to share at this moment. Yoga and shamanism have been so integral to my own healing and growth that it was inevitable that the two paths would, at some point, merge into one. As I've gone deeper into the history and development of yoga, the distinction between yoga and shamanism disappeared. And what I found is that they are both broad terms that essentially refer to nature-based practices that share the goals of facilitating healing and attaining spiritual knowledge and power. So if you're interested in exploring a soulful approach to yoga that goes deeper than hamstrings, hip openers, and handstands, or you're looking for a practice to support your shamanic journeying with or without plant medicines, then this series might be just the thing for you. So that said, I'd like to offer you, the listener, a special discount so you can experience it for yourself. You can use the code MEDICINEPATH for a 15% discount when you purchase the entire video series, which includes four different healing vinyasa sequences paired with shamanic drum journey, plus 
two additional practices that invoke the power of the sun and moon through vinyasa and chanting with drum and rattle. As a special bonus for Medicine Path listeners, you can also use the code MEDICINEPATH to get a 15% discount on The Art of Yoga, my signature workshop that teaches you the secrets of skillful sequencing and blends the best of therapeutic vinyasa yoga with the moving meditation of vinyasa flow. You can find a link to both courses in the show notes below or in the resources section of my website, brianjames.ca. Okay, thanks for listening. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. And today I'm speaking with Jungian therapist, Jason Smith. Jason is a graduate of the C.G. Jung Institute of Boston and a member of the International Association for Analytical Psychology. He holds a master's degree in counseling psychology with an emphasis in depth psychology from the Pacifica Graduate Institute. He has over 20 years of clinical experience, and he's the past president of the C.G. Jung Institute of Boston, where he currently serves as training analyst and core faculty member in the analytic training program. Jason hosts the podcast, Digital Jung, The Symbolic Life in a Technological Age, and is the author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, which is published by Chiron Publications. Well, Jason, thanks so much for joining me today. It's really great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Brian. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Well, um, like I mentioned to you earlier, when I first contacted you, I did so because I listened to your podcast and I really appreciated the way that you were able to clearly speak about some aspects of the symbolic life or the psychological life uh, mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. You are able to take concepts that can be kind of like squirrely and fuzzy and really bring them into focus using your own um, insights, but also drawing from stories and mythology and poetry. So um, listening to your podcast, I thought you'd be a great person to talk to about specific topics. And I was thinking, you know, I wanted to talk to you about the archetypes. But uh, like I mentioned last night, I ended up getting the Kindle copy of your book and reading it in bed, it really struck a chord with me. And I, I could see a lot of my own experience in, in the book, in the way that you present um, the reasons why you ended up writing this book. So now all I want to talk to you about is your book, but I haven't read it all. So I'm kind of uh, venturing into uncharted territories or into the unknown. But that's okay because I'm totally comfortable doing that. <laughs> I'm just hoping that uh, you know I'll ask uh, ask the right questions to help you um, expand or articulate on what your book's all about. So, just that as an intro. Um, I know we had a certain agenda coming in, but now let's switch gears and talk about probably what's most present for you, which is this book. Yeah, great. That that would be wonderful. Well, I thought a, a good way into it would be to talk about this, this phrase that comes up in the title of both your podcast and your book. So the, the idea of the symbolic life. Yeah. So what does it mean to live a symbolic life? The symbolic life 
you know, it's this phrase that Jung uses in a talk that he gives, right? He, he's speaking to a group of clergy people and uh, he's describing the need for what he calls the symbolic life. And when you look through the collected works, you actually never find the phrase again. He uses it in this talk, um, but it's, it's really striking. And one of the volumes of Jung's collected works is called The Symbolic Life. So it's, it's something that kind of really strikes a chord. Um, for Jung, the idea is that it's a, it's a kind of generic way of talking about a religious life. Uh, not so much a religious life in the sense of being part of a particular religion, a particular group, but of a way of engaging in that realm of experience that has been lost to a lot of people because the, the religions don't function in the same way that maybe they did at one time. And so it's a realm of uh, meaning and it's a realm of engagement with that larger transcendent dimension and how it impacts our experience of everyday life. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I get that. And I get that kind of longing for a more deep and meaningful life of ways to engage with the mystery of life and the big questions that we have. And I know that uh, many of us didn't grow up in a religious tradition because it's, you know, something maybe our parents rejected, or maybe we grew up in a religious tradition that was in some ways um, either problematic or the, the ritual or the tradition has become kind of not satisfactory anymore. Like it's not kind of filling this, this desire for us. Um, so, so what I hear is that we're talking about religion, not necessarily without all of the kind of baggage of some of the Western religious traditions or the Judeo Christian religions. So you make a distinction in your book, I think very purposefully using the book religious rather than spiritual, because right. the, the title of your book, Religious But Not Religious, plays off this common phrase that we hear a lot, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, because right. religions become kind of a dirty word uh, in, a, in some parts of our culture anyway, at least in like the kind of new age spiritual communities that I end up um, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, why the distinction for you? But you know, religious rather than using the word spiritual. There's a couple of reasons that I do that. Um, one is it's provocative, right? When you hear the word religion, you have a feeling. It doesn't kind of smooth it over. It doesn't make it easy, and it might kind of well, it might provoke certain responses, either for or against. Um, and the idea of a symbolic life and a religious life is that, that it involves all of a person's experience, that, that anything that keeps you too distant from the experience is too safe. So that's one reason, is, is to kind of... Uh, stir up as much of the response that a person might have as possible. But the other is, you know, it's not just that. That's a bit arbitrary if it were just that. The other is that for Jung, the word religion functions in the way that we think of the word spirituality. So religion has a particular root, it's Latin root, religio or religio, and that has a particular meaning, right? And, and religio is that which links us to sort of the deeper, 
fundamentals of our experience. So Jung's distinction is between religion, which is a personal, interior, psychological experience, versus a creed. And the creed is the social kind of institutional dimension. The creed is the thing that you confess. It's the belief that you have. But religion is the life force in it. And the religious experience is the experience of something that is beyond us, right? The experience of that transcendent. And the, the other piece is that, you know, the spiritual but not religious idea speaks to a speaks to something important, speaks to a need that we have for some independence from institutional religion. The problem with it is that it's too easy to turn that into a kind of do-it-yourself spirituality where you pick and choose the things that fit you, that are congenial for you and that you like, and you throw out the things that are challenging and that you don't like. But then nothing really challenges you. Nothing uh, forces you or pushes you to be changed, to, to be transformed. Um, and so that, that becomes really, um, you know, a way of avoiding the challenges, the difficulties, the hard work that come with the, the religious approach to, to life. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I recognize myself in that. And when I read that section of your book, it, it really struck me because um, it had me reflecting on my own journey of trying to live a more spiritual life, um, a more religious life is actually what I, I think I was looking for, like what you're talking about. And um, I, I think many of us who would identify as spiritual, but not connected to any particular religious tradition, we end up um, going to other cultures for for to fill that need. Um, and so a lot of us go to the East, you know, I, I took up yoga, and I've always been kind of interested in Eastern spirituality, but also, um, you know, something we would call shamanism, or animistic uh, traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and hmm, I guess the thing about that is, it's it's maybe easier, like you said, it's less challenging for us to go to another culture because these traditions don't carry the same kind of charge for us that, uh, let's say, just speaking for myself, the the Christian tradition might, um, because of all of the problems with how Christianity's been um, implemented and portrayed. Uh, so it's maybe easier, like you said, it's less uh, less charged, it's less triggering. Um, but I wonder at some point, do we have to at some point reckon with our Judeo-Christian roots uh, for fear that unless we do that, it'll remain in the unconscious and kind of keep um, creating problems for us down the road as we try to engage with these other traditions? Like, do you think that's necessary that we, that we reckon with, you know, what I think is in most of our DNA, you know, as if we uh, are of European descent, you know, it's just like the Christianity's in us, whether we want it or not, or the Judaism is in us, whether we want it or not. Yeah. I think there's a, a certain element of, of truth to that. I think there's, there's a lot that's right about that. The move to the East, to Buddhism and Taoism and yoga all makes sense because it's mysterious and it opens us to the mystery and, and we don't have any of that baggage kind of getting in the way where we think we know everything about what that's all about. And so it, it opens us and there's a lot of value to that. And for many people, it works. For many people, it's, it's a real uh, engaged, rigorous way of, 
of transformation and growth. Um, Taoism and Buddhism were my kind of entry into the spiritual life and they're extremely meaningful and valuable. But I found myself missing something personally. That's my experience, right? That there was something that wasn't being touched. And, and it goes along the lines of what you're saying where there is in us a relationship to these Christian images. And of course, this doesn't mean one needs to adopt it or uh, engage in it, but they're part of the air we breathe in a way that we don't even know. Mm -hmm. Part of the language that we speak, so many of the phrases that kind of roll off our tongue come from biblical passages that we've forgotten are biblical passages. Um, Edward Edinger is a Jungian analyst, uh, was one of sort of the first generation of analysts. And he talks about how, you know, one of the most important images for Western civilization has been the crucifixion. And if we don't have some understanding of that, we've cut off a lot of our roots. Now, that doesn't mean that one becomes a Christian uh, or even uh, has to like the image, but there's something in the image that might live in us, that might live in our experience. Um, Jung makes a, a statement somewhere in one of his seminars where he says, you can believe whatever you want but the unconscious religious attitude is what it is. So it may be something that you don't, you don't think you believe, but it's in you. So if it is, it's important that we know. Otherwise, it becomes shadow in some way. And it, it, it tries to force it on us. And it might be, in fact, that some of what we see in, in kind of some of the more extreme fundamentalist approaches is that shadow kind of acting out if we don't have a conscious relationship to it that part of christianity just gets to uh, have a field day without any kind of response yeah yeah i guess that's kind of what i was trying to get to by using the word we like reckoning with it um not yeah. that we necessarily have to take it up or or whatever but at some point we got to deal with this unconscious um you know i think you come from the same kind of background that i do so let's just for the sake of it just say christian uh but we could also be talking about judaism or anything else Absolutely. um it's just easier for me to draw on my own experience so we have to somehow deal with this unconscious christianity and you know it's so funny like in my in my yoga practices and in shamanic ceremonies early on for me what um kind of confused me and surprised me was that the images that were coming up for me in this visionary states were christian images um and when you know i'd be in a in an ayahuasca ceremony going through this uh, really difficult time uh maybe there's something that was making me quite fearful and you know you know who i was praying to you know it wasn't to um shiva or something else from the yoga tradition or the hindu right. tradition it was i was praying to jesus or saint michael you know to come right. help me and protect me and that really kind of surprised me because uh i didn't i didn't grow up with that but like you said it was in the air that i breathed um or the water that i was swimming in it was just the images were there but uh maybe not fully conscious and not fully dealt with. And and so that set me on this whole exploration of my own Christian roots and trying to find a way to reconcile this tension I felt between um, wanting to have a spiritual life, but also having this presence there in me and wondering what it was about and looking at different um, Christian traditions and not really seeing anything there that I 
truly resonated with. Like, you know, I really wish I could find a Christian church that still had some really good ritual in it, you know, like that had some good music and like good, uh, like Gnostic kind of ritual where it was about invoking that within each person rather than just looking to the figurehead at the at the <laughs> the podium you know being the only one who could connect to the highest <laughs> so if i could find that that would be so much easier for me because it would kind of resolve these tensions in me right but i've yet i've yet to really find that yeah it's a it's a real problem uh because there's so much of the tradition that's become an idea and and there's a lot that gets centered around whether you believe or you don't believe um, and the reckoning that you talk about that's a relationship it's some kind of engagement uh, where you don't have to worry about the belief or the the non-belief but you have an experience in a relationship an argument it doesn't really matter uh, but it's something that engages you at a, at a more kind of embodied level, at a more kind of heart-centered level, as opposed to these ideas and what Jung calls the creed, the, the ideas that you're supposed to accept as truth. The ritual engages the person uh, with the experience. It puts you in the experience and you come out with a different relationship. And, and so to have that kind of sense, and that was one of Jung's frustrations with the Christian church, is that it had lost the ability to connect people to what he called the numinous, mm -hmm. right? The transcendent. It was now just a, a, a kind of, spirituality of sentimentality or belief but it wasn't connecting people on a deep level to to the depths of our own being yeah well i feel that and and that's mostly what i found when i've gone out you know searching for a, a church that was still functioning i think in the kind of the the old way um right. you know like I was reflecting on it this morning when I was thinking about talking to you, you know, about my whole kind of engagement with my Christian roots and, and seeking a Christian church that could like fill me up the way shamanism or yoga does. And um, my wife and I lived for a couple of years recently in Montreal. And it's mm -hmm. one of the few old Canadian cities. And it's filled with all of these grand old churches. And I remember I would be teaching uh, yoga in like a corporate office. And after those classes, I would walk across the street where there's this beautiful old church and just go and walk around and look at all of the icons. And, you know, it was one of those churches that still had the pipe organ and the psychedelic stained glass. And like, you know, I walk into a place like that and I'm like, this is like a, a machine for religion for that relinking that you talked about but what i often find is that um it's almost like they've lost the user manual or the the technician who could really get that machine humming you know right uh, so like i could see how it's at a certain point it did function that way like to connect everyone to the numinous like it had the music the incense the the strange light that would be created these um you know these amazing imposing icons and just inspire that sense of awe and wonder but when i go into a church now it's so dry and dull and i haven't found one yet that still has a lot of juice to it you know i've walked by black baptist churches and i can hear there's there's something going on in there right right, right. <laughs> but i would be just as much an outsider there as i would be in in the shaman's hut you know right right that spirit in the in the black churches with the the singing and the shouting and the calling out you can hear that it's 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 just full of life there's a great description by uh, a woman who wrote sort of early 20th century evelyn underhill she wrote a lot about mysticism and uh, about religion and 
she talks about how Christian churches and Christians had become people who were at a symphony and were reading the program, but they weren't listening to the music and, and there wasn't a music to listen to, but it was all about like, they knew the program inside and out and they, they knew the names of the composers, but there wasn't an engagement with the actual music, the actual experience. And that's the, that's the real loss. And part of that is there's a loss of our capacity to live in a sense of mystery, particularly in the West. I think it's part of why we go to the East because it's infused with that sense of uh, the, the unknowable. And here we think we're supposed to know something, like we're supposed to uh, have it kind of in our grasp, as opposed to your experience when you walk in, all of those images touch you on levels that aren't intellectual. They just go like right past the rational and touch something fundamental. That's where religion happens, not in the head and, and not in that, that kind of sort of dull exposition of things. Hmm. Yeah. Um, there, there's something though, like when we talk about like reckoning with our own um, religious traditions or roots, you know, even if we're disconnected from them, they're still in us. They're still kind of working on us in some way. You know, I totally get it why you would want to go to something completely different. I think, you know, it was the, the way it was for me too, is because when you start to uh, question it, engage with it, um, be with it, however you want to talk about that, um, it can bring up a lot of tension. Um, you know, a tension between the, the yearning for a real deep, rich spiritual tradition and community that you belong to, and maybe the lack of it in our culture, um, or the tension between you know, this feeling I have when I look at the image of uh, Christ or Mary and what I know of the Catholic Church and all the atrocities that they're guilty of. You know, so it brings up all of these uncomfortable tensions. It doesn't bring about a, a resolution, you know. Um, and so I can understand why people would want to just like totally skip over that and either go to the East or go to the South and to some shamanic tradition, or, you know, what I, another move I see people making is kind of going to what they think of as their um, pre-Christian roots. So going to uh, some murky paganism that we don't really know <laughs> quite what they were doing back then, but we have kind of an idea that they were a lot like these indigenous people in the South or whatever. Right, right. And so we can like, we can connect to them because that's something that um, is easier for us that doesn't bring up that conflict and tension. Um, so what do you think about that? Like, do you think, uh, I, I mean, we can understand that, right? Like why, of course you wouldn't want to bring up more conflict and tension uh, and dissatisfaction, of course, but why is it important for us to, uh, to deal with that. Um, and, and what is it about that that is, is useful or helpful to us? That's such a great question. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, of course, it's understandable. It's even valuable. It's even necessary. And if that's where the spirit is, if it's in the Eastern traditions, if it's in a shamanic tradition, if that's where aliveness is, go where there's aliveness. Mm. That's that's core. Jung makes this uh, statement where he says, um, you know, it, it's helpful to learn from the wisdom traditions of all cultures. And if you find yourself with this uh, compulsion to believe, then do it. Don't hesitate. If, if that's what comes up for you, if you believe in that or you're drawn to uh, 
one particular tradition over another, go in that direction. If you, if you believe in God and that just won't leave you alone and, and the Christian tradition calls you, go there. He says, if you find in yourself uh, a refusal to believe, don't hesitate, don't believe and see what happens, see how that affects. So there's no dogmatism here. Mm. But the engagement with the tradition is important on some level. Uh, the conflict is difficult. You mentioned the Catholic Church. Uh, there are countless people who have been wounded by their experience of their tradition, um, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, Judaism, Islam, across the board. Mm -hmm. People have been wounded by their tradition. It's hard to go back to a tradition that you've been wounded by, and that might be uh, a time when it's necessary to go somewhere else. My own experience is I wasn't really raised in any tradition in a uh, in an effective way or a, a, a deliberate way. We would go to church on Christmas Eve kind of thing. So I had a tradition, but not a not one that I was particularly active in. But that also meant that I'm not wounded, right? I'm not wounded by my tradition. And so mm. I can explore it without a lot of that conflict. But there is something to finding a relationship. It's kind of like finding a relationship to your family and to the, right. the background that you're in, right? Mm -hmm. You may be wounded by that as well, but there's a danger in cutting off because part of what happens when you cut off from your culture or your family is it doesn't go away. Mm. It just goes under the surface. In fact, they may be more present because of that cutoff than if you really kind of work out the challenges. Mm -hmm. And so engaging with it, I think is, is helpful. The tradition, the religious tradition is also where so much of the wisdom that comes from that symbolic material has been worked and worked and worked for millennia. And there's more in them than we could ever possibly generate in our own lives in the 80 to 100 years that we're going to be on this planet. There's so much that that is available to us. And we don't have enough time as human beings <laughs> to learn. Of. Right, right. Or to <laughs> learn how to be human beings. Mm. So there is wisdom there um, that is worth wrestling with. And the conflicts may very well be part of that challenge you know there's a great image of in the bible of jacob wrestling with the angel the name israel in part means struggle with god and so that idea of struggling with something and wrestling okay. with it can strengthen you even if you don't adopt that experience you know why you're not adopting it. You're not just acting unconsciously. Mm. You're acting very consciously. You have a, a, a deep understanding of your relationship to it. Mm. Yeah. And hmm. no, that's so true. And I think often in, um, in like, let's say the new age, but maybe it's wider than that there's an avoidance of, of struggle and conflict. Uh, you know, it's like, let's get to Shanti already. <laughs> and what that often involves is a heck of a lot of um, suppression or bypassing. <laughs> like, so we have to be willing to, uh, to be troubled, 
right? And and so what, what what I hear from you is that the troubling is a part of the religious life, the the struggle, the you know the the unknowing, the the tensions, all of that is it's. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm struck by these two images. On one hand, we've got like the placid lake of the Buddhist mind, you know, and that's the goal. And on the other hand, we've got this kind of like churning, like there's a Leviathan under the water or St. George and the dragon wrestling and stirring things up and not placid at all. <laughs> right, right, right. Except that, that the, the goal ultimately, say in the, Christian tradition is the peace that passes all understanding. It is that placid lake that you want to get to, but you can't start there. I mean, we want to get there. We want to, like you say, the bypass. We want to uh, avoid the struggle. I think it is one of the things that Christianity brings to the the field of religious experience. Uh, you know, each of these traditions brings their particular uh, perspective and all of them together kind of are these different ways in and different understandings. And one of the things that Christianity does do is it does do that struggle. It, you know, its basis is the incarnation, what gets worked out in this life and what mm. gets worked out in the, the kind of messy human embodied experience of, of living. And the struggle is, yeah, it's, it doesn't stop. Again, I, you know, I, this is a very Jungian point of view too. Jung's fundamental belief about analysis is that it doesn't lead to a cure. You do not get cured by analysis. You change your attitude. You develop an attitude that allows you to engage with the unconscious, to engage the challenges, the vicissitudes, the, the disruptions of life. So you become resilient, but you're not fixed. He says, we need problems. As soon as we run out of problems, we, we're, we're not in life anymore. So that struggle is part of the, 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 the way that we keep creating and developing and growing and deepening our experience. Hmm. Yeah. You know, that's something that I've uh, really only been coming to in the past couple years is this acceptance that the struggle maybe never goes away and maybe we shouldn't want it to go away. I think we get kind of indoctrinated uh, through psychology and new age spiritualities that peace, like uh, an abiding peace or a stability or centeredness is possible. First of all, it's raised as a possibility and it's kind of like a, a promise. You know, I call it the carrot on the end of a very long stick. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think we get indoctrinated into that, and that leads to a struggle of its own sort, where people are then in this conflict between this ideal, like, God, if Eckhart Tolle can get there, that means that I can too. And then the struggle is, well, how do I get there? And then becomes like the kind of potpourri spirituality, where it's like, I'm, I'm drawing on all these things, because I'm not getting there with just yoga or just sitting and trying to meditate the mind into submission um and and so i think you know it's only been for the a couple of years where i've really started to just kind of accept that life is always going to be full of this this troubling and that i actually start to enjoy being troubled more and more when i drop the notion that uh, i should be at a more 
stable, peaceful place all the time, and that I should never be troubled. And like the fact that I'm troubled, it's a sign that my spiritual practice isn't working, or I'm not doing enough. And so then maybe I got to become a vegan or something. You know what I mean? Right, right. I think that plays out on all levels. You know, we see that play out in relationships. It becomes a struggle and we start to go, you know, this isn't fun anymore. Right. So, you know, maybe we should call it quits. That might be the moment where the growth starts to happen in that relationship. It doesn't mean that one should stay in difficult situations always, but the struggle is important. One of my favorite Zen stories, I think it's a Zen story that I read once, uh, is uh, a story about a Zen master who's who's dying. And all his disciples gather around him and they they beg him for one last word, like one last parting word. And he says, I'm afraid of dying. <laughs> and they all get troubled and they look at each other and, and they, they start to go, no, 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 wait a minute. You, you don't understand that. That can't be the last word. Can you please give us something more than that? And he, he pauses and he says, I'm really afraid of dying. Wow. The ability to be with whatever is, even if it's fear, even if it's that to me is the peace is that it's not that mm -hmm. all the trouble goes away. It's that we, we know how to be with it. We know how to be in the storm as well as in the calm. That's really for me, the goal of any religious or spiritual practice. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that too, that, uh, yeah, it's, it's like peace with all arising conditions right not just uh with the peaceful <laughs> right harmonious arising conditions no it's it's being at peace and at being at peace is a kind of acceptance and uh, like a resolute acceptance you know yeah. like this too and this too i i love that story because it kind of like at, at his last moments his his final teaching was to pull the rug out from underneath his students who figured well the end goal is like serenity or but even serenity i think at its core is more about that um that that acceptance of whatever is coming up you know not just the the joyous and the you know i'm getting caught up in words with of peace and serenity but right. um, but you know what i mean like you know if everything was just okay out there then I'm okay too, right? Uh, right? And so this demand on the external to conform to this idea of peace and harmony, whereas maybe right. the greatest spiritual master is the one who's able to just be with it all and and to be uh, to to fall apart or to to be uh, emotional. You know, that's another thing that I see it being put up as some kind of ideal is this emotional detachment, you know, like when I look at videos of Eckhart Tolle, I'm like, you want to be like that guy? Like I've never seen someone so kind of dry and dull. And I, I would just wonder what's going on underneath the surface with that guy. You know, like I want to hear from his wife about him getting upset over the eggs in the morning. <laughs> right. Right. That's exactly, you know, the the very realized personality Jung would always say yes well go look at his wife and children and you'll see if there's a shadow kind of in the background oh yeah perfect so uh, it, detachment we i think we get it wrong when we want it to be some relief from the conditions of life as opposed to for me, the idea of detachment is whatever, as you said, whatever is arising to say, yes, this is what's present right now. This is what's here. This is the challenge, but not to push back against it and say, this shouldn't be. It's when we say this shouldn't be that we start to create these conflicts and difficulties and struggles in our, in our experience. And so maybe we could um, say it's the same when starting to engage with 
um, the re religious traditions that you grew up around. Uh, yeah. Like it's when we start to push against them or to push them away uh, that it actually creates the conflict that we're trying to avoid through the the other spiritual practices that we're choosing. <laughs> I think that's right. I think we we are looking for it to be something. We're 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 imposing a need on it we're imposing an image on it it's part of our the way we get things backwards a little bit is we mm -hmm. try to achieve a universe that fits the, the the thing that we're looking for and and to make it the meaning of the universe fit our experience as opposed to find a way to adapt to the way the universe is and if this is the symbolic universe, the Christian universe, the Buddhist universe, there that symbolic universe is what it is. And if there are things that are troubling, you, you engage it and you face it. And then it teaches you something. It might not be an easy lesson to, to get but it teaches you something that is not what you already know about yourself, not what you already know about life, but, but it opens you and expands your experience. Yeah. You just reminded me, I, I had highlighted this passage from your book. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to read your own book to you for a moment, but <laughs> I think Great. it Thank con you. connects with what you're talking about. Here. Yeah. And when I read this last night, I was struck by it. So, Okay, so um, you say, at the same time, uh, okay, I'm getting at the wrong moment here, but stick with it. At the same time, there's a problem with the spiritual but not religious attitude. All too easily, it becomes an approach by which someone can shape a kind of do-it-yourself spirituality that reflects who and what the person already is but that does not challenge that person to become what he or she could be, but is not yet. To reject the structures of religion out of hand because of what one does not like about religion is to run the risk of constructing a merely congenial spirituality that may feel good and may even sometimes be a comfort, but they may lack the capacity to accomplish the kind of growth and transformation that all religious traditions seek to affect. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. The, it takes a kind of courage that's hard to do to let ourselves be changed, to let things affect us, and to open ourselves to the the disturbing, which is part of the role of religion. Part of its role is to subvert our values and push us and challenge us to look at ourselves differently and to grow into the potentials that are in all of us. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm feeling like that's a great way to end this this part of the conversation anyway. Um, there's a lot there. You've got me thinking about it. I can't wait to to finish your book because um, it's raised a whole bunch of stuff for me. And That's awesome. Great. Yeah, and probably stuff I'm going to be wrestling with for a while, I think, you know, um, kind of bringing up some of these old uh, questions again. Like, you know, something that comes up, I think – Young said at one point, and maybe it was at the end of that whole lecture he did on uh, Kundalini, but he said something to the effect, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he said that the West needs to find its own yoga, or it needs to create a Christian yoga, because he felt that you know this Christianity was in our DNA, whether we like it or not, and these symbols were embedded in our unconscious psyche. And... You know, I've thought about that over the years, being a yoga practitioner, coming from this Christian tradition, having these images come to me in my reverie. 
and wondering like, what the hell do I do with that? Like, is it, you know, something like what I see out in the world, like a, um, like literally Christian yoga, where it's just, you take yoga practice and you put it in this context of Christianity. So instead of, uh, a statue of Ganesha or Shiva, you've got, uh, Christ there or something right. that, that never felt quite right to me. It felt kind of like putting two Lego blocks together. Didn't quite fit or something, but I, I'm wondering now, after talking to you, if what he was meaning by yoga is really what yoga actually means and what religion actually means. So a, a way to link, a way to connect with the numinous, but a numinous with a particularly Christian flavor, because that's in us whether we want it or not, right? And so that we need to find a new way to do that, maybe a new kind of church or a new set of rituals. And what, what do you think about that? I, th I think, well, I think you're right. I think that, that it's, it's not about uh, just replacing the sort of the superficial forms of yoga with Christian iconography and Christian language or something like that. For Jung, it is, I mean, that whole seminar on kundalini yoga it's very clear that it's this rich symbolic tradition it's it's not just uh, you know um the way that we sort of many people sort of popularly think of uh yoga as a, a form of nice exercise or something like that it's very rich symbolic yeah i call it the spiritualized aerobics <laughs> yeah yeah the body and the mind and the soul are all engaged in in something and this is what jung's work is all about jung's work is about engaging with the symbolic material that is our heritage and coming into a new relationship. He talks about how the real creative people in religion are the mystics mm -hmm. because the mystics are not just doing the forms of religion, but they're meeting those realities through their own meditations, through their own deep contemplations, often through their own physical exercises of different kinds, their ascetic exercises, you know. Uh, and so it's a, it's a new way of relating and uh, engaging them. And Jung talks about, you know, having to know what the traditional language of the church is and then find one's own way and mm -hmm. it's between those two poles where that new engagement that new energy that yoga that you're talking about i think that comes out of that mm -hmm. where each person is experiencing their own relationship and then you do the work of kind of trying to connect it in some way to tradition so that you're not yeah, out there on your own. To, yeah. Right. But not necessarily just kind of locking it in and closing down the new. It's, it's, it's about bringing a kind of artist sensibility to the work. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get through the rest of your book and see if there's any more questions I have. But I think uh, I, I love leaving it there with this invitation to start to engage um, in a participatory way and in, in an imaginative way with some of these imbles that might be uh, troubling us. You know, like yeah. if the white surfer Jesus troubles you, well, maybe do a meditation where you try to connect with what. What, how Jesus wants to present himself to you uh, and draw your own picture to put on the altar or something. But just as a way to like bring it into the tangible and the practical, like how to, how to do this. So working with imagination and meditation and, and allowing for 
how it wants to be revealed to us individually, I think is a beautiful invitation. Right, right. It puts the initiative back on the on the energy, on the symbol. We don't have to impose anything. It can tell us how it wants to come forward. Yeah. And, and that's that's kind of exciting. Yeah, but then the other piece of what you said, I, I think too, is important that that not we just that doesn't mean we just make up a new story of Christianity, but through doing that, and and so what going to my own experience. So this is how it's worked for me is allowing for that, allowing it to come up fresh within me, this engagement with these Christian symbols allows me to go into a church like the one across the street from where I taught yoga and to, to not, uh, to not like be triggered by any perception I have of a dogmatic structure or storyline or anything, but I can go up to an image of the Christ and feel a deeper connection that goes beyond the kind of surface representation of that particular image, right? right? It's like I'm connecting to the heart and soul of Christ or of Mary or of St. Michael. Uh, and I'm not really bothered so much by how uh, he or she is is represented in that particular instance, right? Right, right. It's absolutely. I mean, it, it, the image becomes a window. It, it, it becomes transparent to what's beyond it. It might even throw the name out. It might even say, you know, it doesn't even have to go by the name of Mary or Jesus, but it becomes the window through which you connect to the, the, the kind of pulsing energy yeah. behind it. Okay, we did end up getting to the archetypes because this is what we're talking about, right? So, there you know, what, what does the image of Mary help me connect to? And if that particular form of that image is blocking me from connecting to the, the good nurturing mother, maybe I find a different image or maybe I allow my own image of her to form in my own psyche, right? Right. Yeah, right, exactly. but don't let it block you from connecting to that archetypal energy, which is transformative and which is nourishing. Right, absolutely. That that's exactly right. You know, there's a great line from Alan Watts who says, you know, the whole kind of thrust of say the Christian tradition is the core image is always pointing away from itself. It's always pointing beyond itself. Christ is crucified. It's like the you have to go beyond your image of it. And then he's resurrected and Mary Magdalene goes up and sees him and he says, don't cling to me, mm. right? That's the heart of it. Don't cling to it. You hold all of these things loosely. You look beyond it. They're all fingers pointing at the moon. Mm. <laughs> or maybe be like Thomas and go up and actually like, poke him and say, look, are you real, man? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, what an interesting image after what we've talked about with all the, the kind of woundedness, um, like the doubting Thomas, it's poking a wound. And so that's going to be kind of like tender and painful, right? Like that doubt that we have about the validity of our, our uh, ancestral religion or, right. or Christianity or whatever, that doubt that we have about it there's something in that, like, yes, we sh actually should doubt. We should kind of poke at it to see, like, you know, to evoke some feeling, first of right. all, to not just let it be some easily dismissed uh, thing, you know? Like, if we don't feel it, it's easier for us to go, oh, Christianity, yes, uh, you know, uh, pedophiles and corruption, and ugh, I just want nothing to do with it, right? Right it stops us from engaging in that, that kind of feeling and the provocation that you talked about, like poking right. at it, yeah, poking right. at us. <laughs> right. And, but not just being a, a sort of blind adoption of it either yeah. to be able to, to test to it. To doubt. And, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is great. I'm so happy that we talked and that the, you know, our conversation uh, went this way. We ended up yeah. where I thought we might or hope we might. And so there we That's go. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> this is fun stuff.
Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for spending some time with us. And um, if people want to find out more about you, your website is, um, tell me, is jungiantherapist.com? Jungiantherapist.net. Dot net. Yeah. Yeah. It's Jason Smith. And the name of your podcast is Digital Jung. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify and all those places. And the book is religious, but not religious. And it's all about living um, a more symbolic, meaningful life. So thanks thanks so much. And I I really recommend everyone check you out. Well, thank you. Thanks, Brian. This this has been fun to to talk with you. It's, It's great. Great. Okay. Well, take care. You too. Hey, thanks for listening and making it this far. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing and leaving a positive review on iTunes or a thumbs up on YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can share it with your friends or become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path, where you can listen to the full podcast archives and podcast extras, plus access hours of yoga practice resources and discounts on my online yoga courses. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and the rains fall soft upon your fields until we meet again on the medicine path. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.